Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is a special edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Now, today's broadcast will focus solely on violence and our youth. And if you're asking why, well, homicide is the third leading cause of death for young people ages 10 to 24. And the leading cause of death for non-Hispanic, black or African-American youth? Yes, it is. It's the leading cause of death. And then there's this. Firearms are now the leading cause of death for Americans between the ages of 1 and 17. Community leaders join me today to talk about the root causes of youth violence, including systemic socioeconomic barriers. And then there's this. Is there and what is the holistic approach to combating the increase in youth violence? We'll talk about all that. But first, this public health officials efforts to get more people booked for the monkeypox vaccine is working. That's according to Dr. Jonathan Colasanti of Grady Health System. He says cases are still popping up, mostly in men who have sex with men. But he says the virus is not spreading as quickly as it was just a month ago. Folks that kind of were probably at the highest risk of getting infected have already been infected. There may be a little bit of immunity kind of among that highest risk group. And then layered on that, and there's data from the CDC that are showing that some individuals are making some behavioral changes based on kind of the CDC's recommendations. Now, this comes as two Metro Atlanta school districts have confirmed at least one case of monkeypox each. And you can hear more with Grady's Dr. Jonathan Colasanti on WAB's All Things Considered this afternoon with Jim Burris. In other news, small businesses in Atlanta continue to face challenges associated with COVID-19. As we hear from Emil Moffitt, the city of Atlanta is helping with some financial relief. Just before he sat down for lunch in the Cascade Heights neighborhood, Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens handed over a check. All right, come on up, uh, Lucy Sims of the beautiful restaurant. This eatery is one of more than 400 small businesses or nonprofits in Atlanta receiving resurgence grants to help offset expenses brought on by the pandemic. The money comes from federal relief funds. The restaurant's Lucy Sims says with the cost of food and labor on the rise, the extra money is crucial. This frees us up to look for people, more qualified people, but mainly just good, stable health. She says that shortage of workers has prevented the restaurant from opening for breakfast like it used to. The city says more than three-fourths of resurgence grants were awarded to minority-owned businesses. Emil Moffat, WABE News. And finally, the Atlanta affiliate of the AIDS Healthcare Foundation is joining so many other organizations to help residents of Jackson, Mississippi, where there's currently a water crisis. Recent heavy rains has led to no access to safe drinking water for more than 150,000 people in Mississippi's capital. AHF is donating 50,000 bottles of water today in partnership with the locally owned business Positivity Water. This is Closer Look. There's an awful lot of fighting and assault that occurs between uh, kids. Good kids get involved in youth violence. We typically refer to the age group between 10 and 24. Violence right now is a leading cause of death among young people in this country. In communities where they see violence around them all the time, it's very easy for them to begin emulating it. We probably spend more on violence than pretty much any other community issue. We just spend it all after the fact. After the fact, locking children up is not really prevention. There are some examples where communities are making a difference through violence prevention. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. What you just heard was the opening to a national initiative led by the CDC. It was called STRIVE, or Striving to Reduce Youth Violence Everywhere. That was in 2011. And now in 2022, here's what we know. 
Homicide. It's the third leading cause of death for young people between the ages of 10 and 24. The leading cause of death for non-Hispanic, black, or African-American youth. And recently, from 2019 to 2020, gun homicides among children and teenagers rose dramatically. And as a result, firearms are now the leading cause of death for Americans, here's the age, folks, 1 to 17. In addition, young Americans are suffering from a rapid and devastating rise in school shootings. We know about that. And also, the mental health toll, perhaps the loss of a parent due to a firearm-related violence, or their friends, or their communities, or the entire school. There's a lot of optics to this. We're joining me today, community leaders who will talk about systemic root causes of youth violence, and also those systemic socioeconomic barriers. And maybe, just maybe, what is the holistic approach to combating the increase in youth violence. So joining me on this special edition of Closer Look, first up, Charles Chuck Barlow, Sr., CEO of the Pan-African American Chamber of Commerce and former founder of Saving Our Sons and Daughters here in studio. Regular contributors to the program regarding this issue, Kelly and C.J. Stewart, founders of Atlanta-based Lead Center for Youth. The The organization's mission is to empower Atlanta youth to become leaders in their own communities. And at the core is the sport of baseball. And Joshua Bird returns to the program. He's the committee chair for the Anti-Gun Violence Committee of the 100 Black Men of Atlanta. Thank you all for taking the time. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. I'm going to go back a little bit because in, in researching and getting ready for this, this segment, which I wasn't surprised, but going back decades, and Mr. Barlow, Chuck, I'll start with you. Going back decades to the 90s and any of the early 80s when discussions about youth violence being addressed as a public health problem. People were talking about it then. We're still talking about it in 2022. Through your lens, Mr. Barlow, what's not working? What are we missing here? I need you to unmute for me. There we go. Well, well, this is, uh, uh, Ro, thank you uh, again for being on the uh, program today to talk about this issue of uh, youth violence. And um, we we are our culture has become a culture of violence Mm -hmm. um with the proliferation of of guns and with what a lot of uh people see happening in our community in terms of how adults are reacting to situations uh they're kind of mimicking what's going on in the community not just in the community but in our culture so I think a lot of that has to do with it. And then a lot of other contributing factors that I'll talk about more specifically in terms of what the factors are and what we need to do to address them. Absolutely. We'll get to that. Kelly Stewart, um, since the late 80s and 90s, it was a public health issue. Folks said we should call this a public health crisis, youth violence. Still talking about it in 2022 because it's on the rise. And we're still talking about it because um, we have a culture of surviving. And when people are focused on surviving, they're not focused on the future because the future seems so far away and the future seems unreasonable. So when you have, you know, limited access to resources, to housing, when you're being pushed out of communities, when you have this generational trauma um, that exists in our country, like I say, origin stories matter. We always try to understand issues in 2022 without visiting revisiting issues of our past so if we can when we can let me speak on the asset side of things when we find a way to get past this culture of survival and get to thriving we will see a difference cj what do you think so serving as our chief visionary officer uh, for LEAD, you know, we have a very clear mission, um, and that is to empower an at-risk generation to lead and transform the city of Atlanta, using baseball as a vehicle to help them overcome crime, poverty, and racism. Mm-hmm. And so if we accomplish that vision and that mission, then we can accomplish the vision for our LEAD ambassadors to lead their city of Atlanta to lead the world. So my job is to be in the future, and similar to what Kelly was saying as far as origin stories, at a 30,000-foot level, um, change has to start with conviction then there's a connection then there's consensus then collaboration and then change unfortunately what we do a terrible job of is when we want change we go backwards we want to start with collaborating and then when the collaboration doesn't work then we let's discuss a consensus of what to do and then let's get connected and then we spend thousands of dollars going on some kind of retreat to try to get convicted so at the 30,000-foot level, in order for us to make change, we have to start and get convicted. Joshua Bird? Yeah, and speaking about that conviction and, and speaking about what we need, uh, I think it's, it's, it's a simple process that needs to take place that we need to follow 
uh, but we don't necessarily have the infrastructure. And I think that uh, locally, what we do with the 100 black men of Atlanta, when we look at education and economic opportunities, we know what we do works, but we do not have the ability to touch each and every child. I think that's where local government comes into place. And if we had a local office of violence prevention, such as what the city of Atlanta just did up, if we had that in all jurisdictions, but not only locally, but at the state and national level, it will give us the infrastructure to create these awareness campaigns, come up with some programs, conduct research on those programs to see if they're working, and then take those best practice practices and implement them. And then we'll see the change and we'll recognize the changes that we seek. I want to get more into that because each of you have touched on something here. Uh, Chuck Barlow, I want to take a moment because I want to talk about Caden Barlow Gardner. And full disclosure, disclosure I, I met Caden when he was about, what, six or seven years old, I think. Um Tell our audience about Caden. Well, Caden was a great kid um, in a situation where um, getting involved with a an activity that was <clears throat> actually facilitated because the, the young folks didn't have anything to do. They were having these events um, where there would be, could be 50 to 200 kids show up at a place where um, they would have fights and so it would draw these kids attention and he attended one of those things and was a a bystander that was uh, uh, shot and killed uh, two of his other friends were wounded uh, and what happens at these things you know <laughs> kids uh, they're going to just have fun and watch uh, but then somebody shows up with a gun and starts shooting you know um, and that was, I tell you what, that brought it close to home. We had another friend, the same thing happened at a, at a party where the son went to the party and uh, some kids came to disturb the party. And when they left, they started shooting and an innocent bystander got killed. So the, the thing is with these kids with guns, you know, they don't, uh, and I'll talk about this a little bit later in terms of uh, when you have situations. Now that situation with Caden was not, not a situation where an individual could uh, intervene in that. I mean, these are one of the things that we try to talk to the people in authority is that we got to have something for these kids to do. That was one of the major contributors to that event is that these kids had nowhere to go and nothing to do. And they were going to different places um, <clears throat> during the, 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 the week uh, to have these events. And so a lot of that was shut down after that. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was, uh, and, and you know, that brought it close to, we were already working on these types of things, but that brought it close to home. Chuck, uh, it made it personal, painful and personal. Chuck, how old was Caden? 14. And our condolences 14. on the loss of your grandson. And we should note that there has been, this happened last summer, uh, there has been one arrest and it was another juvenile so far in connection with Caden's murder, correct? Uh, that's correct, and I can't talk really about that because the case hasn't absolutely closed yet. So, yeah, yeah, they did get two guys that were involved, and uh, that's in process. CJ and, and Kelly Stewart, you work with Atlanta's youth. Um, Chuck talked about here's one problem: there's nothing for some of these kids to do. And you know, kids, you hang out with other kids. If you don't have anything to do and you got a friend that doesn't have anything to do, y'all end up hanging out together with nothing to do, and then it grows and grows. You all work with youth. What are you hearing from them about what leads often to these instances where there's a gun or, or a massive fight or a brawl here? Mr. Barlow, um, my heart goes out to you and your family for what you're dealing with right now and um just wanted to make sure I, I said that and because uh, this is a heavy heavy topic and we have to think about the reasons why youth um if we're going to say gangs or youth use their idle time uh in <clears throat> non-productive ways i mean it can be influence mm -hmm. it could be a lack of safety and security that they're feeling that they feel like this group of youth can give them it can be a matter of respect um it can be uh, a number of things the good thing about all of those things is those things can be found in other places mm -hmm. 
through our year-round sport-based youth development programming through the LEAD Center for Youth, our boys can be a part of a team, but they can be a part of a team that's doing things that are positive. And what we have to do as a society is think about ways that we can invest more in organizations and programs that are working so we can serve more youth instead of trying to figure out how we can build another jail. CJ. Yeah, and you know one of the things that's very important as well is making sure that the subject matter experts um, have knowledge and not just information. And so information plus experience equals knowledge. And so sometimes um, those people within our community uh, don't step up to uh, accept a calling. That was a calling on my life in 2007 to come back home to Atlanta uh, to start lead with Kelly. Prior to that, I was just trying to pursue things from a selfish standpoint. Mm -hmm. And so I had a convicting moment that caused me to um, start lead. And so the reason why we are able, Kelly and I are able to really dig deep and be empathetic towards the boys uh, that we're serving and even the trauma that's in their family is because we've experienced that. So we, we're sharing information, but we have credibility because we've experienced it. And so now that knowledge is power. Where'd you grow up, CJ? Uh, off of Hollywood Road uh, in Hollywood Brooks Apartments. And, um, you know, I was that kid that was my mom made sure I was dressed in my khakis and my uh, penny loafers and things like that because, you know, she would look at a lot of television and, and had these aspirations for me. But living over there, I was exposed to a lot of um, bad things. And if it wasn't for baseball, mm -hmm. uh, I have no idea where I would be. And fortunately for me, my very first coach was Emmett Johnson, who was the chairman of the Atlanta Public Schools Board of Education. So, you know, and, and he wasn't one of these black men that just was like, hey, I'm just doing the best that I can. I mean, he made sure we knew that I am a good man. I'm not perfect. I have power. I'm going to use that power to empower. And so I always felt like I could be successful because of the men that I was with. If we're talking about Joshua and I'll come to you in a minute, Chuck. If we're talking about then a community model that can be implemented, and that's not easy because every community is different. And it's not to say that we're just going to focus solely on certain zip codes, but we do know, let's be really clear, that certain zip codes experience a lot of violence and trauma. Let's be real clear about that. And some systemic Absolutely. root causes that have been generational. Joshua, if we're talking about a community model, and I have a, someone just sent me an email. When are y'all going to talk about the role of the parents? Well, we're going to get into that. But if we're talking about a community model, Josh, what does that look like? Where does it begin? First, first, everyone <clears throat> must be included. It has to be a collaboration that involves every single entity in that community. For so long, we rely upon the nonprofit organizations, the organizations that traditionally serve the youth. We need parents we need individuals who don't have children at all and may not want any. We need businesses. We need all stakeholders at the table. And I think, uh, uh, is it Chuck? CJ. CJ. CJ made a very, a very um, great point. Not everyone has the knowledge. And a lot of times the folks who we consider the professionals don't have the knowledge. But what he did say and what CJ said is, you know, knowledge is that information and experience. We have folks in the community who have both. Mm -hmm. And we find that some of the best mentors have the same knowledge and have the same experience and information as the youth who they're mentoring. And that's why they're so effective. So they don't have to be the professionals, mm -hmm. but as long as they have that knowledge, we need your knowledge in all areas of our programs and what we're trying to do. Chuck Barlow, if we're talking about a community based model. Through your lens, you heard what Joshua just said. Where does it begin? OK, let me. Um let me approach this from two perspectives. Number one, uh, people shouldn't complain about what nobody else is doing until they're doing something themselves. Mm -hmm. I'm the uh, co-founder of Saving Our Sons and Sisters International, founded in uh, 2008, uh, to address the issues. We started out primarily dealing with the issues of black males not achieving, mm -hmm. and it expanded into uh, uh, working with all children and with families. And um, I'm the director of strategic partnerships because we realized that uh, we, we have what we call a collaborative, our compass program, which is community partners for student success. Mm -hmm. 
uh, because we realize we, we don't have a solution for everybody, but we have partners that have the solution. It's a collaborative effort to fix this. Now, but personally, we had to do this for ourselves. We had to individually have solutions and the solutions we came up with violence prevention, and that includes conflict resolution and de-escalation. Mm-hmm. And, and let me let me emphasize this: we started working with Washington High School. I remember a, this was back 2010, and uh, Rose was involved in that. Uh, PBS mm-hmm. was, was involved in that. We and, and there was almost a fight every every day, uh, some weeks. And what we realized is the kids were not taught um, some basic things. One is they were not taught how to de-escalate a situation. So it ended up in a fight. So mm-hmm. we started teaching some basic things that kids are not taught in school anymore. Parents are not teaching, churches are not teaching, nobody's teaching those. Um, uh, uh, we got, we, we, we have uh, opp- uh, opportunities to address other areas. I won't get into that. We have mentorship programs and training and other wraparound services. But let me get to the big picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my community of Jackson, Georgia, Butts County, uh, the police chief came to me and said, you know, uh, Barlow, could you get the pastors together because we need help. We have an increase in violence in our community, and it's primarily in the black community. So we, we, we formed what we call the concerned clergy in Butts County. Mm-hmm. Uh, that included pastors and ministers. And uh, we came up with a so you got to get everybody involved in this but let me and i've been doing research to find other solutions because i had to present something to them to say okay here's some things we can specifically do and i found this report that was done in in november 21 and actually it was a meeting in washington dc mm-hmm. of city government stakeholders nonprofit business leaders community members um all gathered together to come up with a solution to what will it take to stop the shootings. And here's one of the reports that came out of that. It said the recent reports found neighborhoods with high rates of shootings face a mixture of poverty, institutional racism, Mm -hmm. subpar education, generational trauma, crime and violence with an overlay of blight, historic underinvestment, and economic isolations. That's so, what Kelly. That's uh, what Kelly Stewart was that, talking about. Yeah. Sorry, Chuck. Yeah, I wondered. Yeah, there are yeah. a lot of causes to this. Yeah, you got to figure out what the causes is before you start coming up with solutions. And then they came up with a lot of practical solutions. And I sent you this article, Rose, so that you know you can send it to other people. Now, here's what here's one of the things that came out of this. They said um, those in greatest need and highest risk are not being <clears throat> served. Violence reduction efforts can be broken down into three areas, violence prevention, violent intervention, and community transformations. Each community organization fits into one of these. And they brought together all of these people and um, uh, <clears throat> to, to help come up with the solutions to this problem. And Reverend Timothy McDonald mm-hmm. was at that because he was developing a strategy for the bluff uh, in Atlanta. Now this was in Washington, DC. It's a very comprehensive program that gives you some very practical solutions on how to address each one of those tenants that came out of that. And we'll talk about that after the break. Chuck Barlow talking about prevention, intervention, and then transformation. Kelly, that's what you were talking about before we can even start implementing. Absolutely. We've we've got to really take a, a more different approach to addressing the systemic causes, and we'll talk more about that. You're listening to Closer Look. We're back in a moment. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And 
And Closer Look continues here on 90.1 WABE. From Atlanta, I'm Rose Scott. When we talk about what's the holistic approach to combating the increase in youth violence, well, there are a lot of different approaches, a lot of different solutions, some that may have worked in the past and some that just haven't. Well, joining me on this special edition of Closer Look as we examine that, we have Charles Chuck Barlow, CEO of the Pan-African American Chamber of Commerce and co-founder of Saving Our Sons and Daughters. Daughters here in the studio, Kelly and C.J. Stewart, founders of American of Atlanta-based Lead Center for Youth, and also Joshua Bird. He is the committee chair for the Anti-Gun Violence Committee for 100 Black Men of Atlanta. And before we went to break, and, and we were talking about these community models here, and and I have a, an email from a listener that that was talking about perhaps. Well, I'm just going to read what the listener said, and, and you all can address that. The listener says, "Hey Rose, I hope your guests realize that for many of these kids, they got to be cool." That's not too obvious to adults. I did ask the listener to to take it further, and they said, well, there are too many guns out there in the first place, a grievous opportunity for kids trying to look cool. But is it more than that, Kelly? So I serve on the board of the Community Foundation from Greater Atlanta, and uh, Courtney English from the mayor's office came to speak to us, and he shared with us this stat. 52% of violence in Atlanta has no underlying crime to it. Basically what that means is we're somewhere and we get mad with each other. I get my gun, you get yours, and we shoot it out instead of talk it out. What that says to us as a society is we have children who are growing into adults who have not been taught how to resolve conflict. Well, guess what? That goes hand in hand with the systemic issue of racism and poverty because when you are living in survival mode every day, I don't know if people really understand what that means because if you've always known where your meal is coming from and you've always had a roof over your head and you have not had to move five times in one year not due to jobs but due to being evicted or due to your vouchers not being accepted when you have that level of trauma in your life conflict resolution is in the distant because you're always in the urgent here and now and so cj can talk more about how we address that in our program because we know it's an issue now we got to address it so cj how do you address it with the boys so starting with you know just taking the the model of the negro leagues which was um for many reasons was established so that boys can become men it was a rite of passage so if you were not playing baseball uh you were not able to fully develop into a uh, to a man and so, you know, for us in our Legacy League, this is our fall boot camp where up to 100 boys in Atlanta public schools are trying to become a lead ambassador. Mm-hmm. And so a lead ambassador is the highest level of our programming. And ultimately, we want them to become major league citizens like you, Rose. And so these are people that are just strong contributors to our, um, our community. So within that legacy league is, is, is ironic, you know, again, you know, starting from a place of conviction, we didn't have the funds to hire umpires mm-hmm. when we first had our league. So I just said, you know what, y'all are going to have to call balls and strikes uh, outs at bases and so on and so forth. So what we end up learning was it was a great tool because you can give boys information about conflict resolution, but if you don't give them the experience and the mm-hmm. opportunity to put it in action, so every day they come to the field, if if a pitcher throws a strike and you believe it's a strike, uh, or and then the batter, you know, he he doesn't agree, y'all got a few options right there. You can fight it out, which we don't condone. You can have a verbal altercation, which we don't condone, or y'all can get this figured out. And 99.9% of the time, they always do it. So, again, information is not power. Mm-hmm. Knowledge is power, which is information and experience. Joshua, I want to, I just got a, we got a message via social media from someone that says, please talk about the need to support parents with information about raising children. We need to plan a way to educate and nurture the parents so they can begin to pass on to their children healthier ways of thinking, behaving, and modeling appropriate behavior. The parents also need to be carefully taught. Absolutely. And I'm going to start with the end of it. It talks about the parents need to be carefully taught. Um, If I understand that correctly, yes, it's important that the, the parents do a great job at raising their children. But as a professor, I always go up to the board and I ask students, now, now, I'm here to write down the tools. I'm here to write down the books that equip parents with the skills they need to raise kids. What book do we use? And so and so when we do that and we go there, we understand that parents need tools, too. I feel like it's incumbent upon our society, the government, to make sure that our school system are equipping children 
to be productive members of society. And part of that deals with how do you resolve conflict? Because this conflict resolution training, which we've given at Best Academy, Ivy Prep Academy and Kirkwood over 10 sessions, it not only saves lives out in the community amongst children when you talk about gun violence, mm -hmm. it saves jobs, it saves relationships, and it makes society just a greater place. Chuck Barlow, you hear what Josh was saying. I understand what the person sent this message via social media, and I, and I know parents, some parents that say, look, I do the best I can to be a good parent. I'm working two jobs. Perhaps my spouse is working two jobs so we can afford this high rent. Come on <laughs> just now. another issue, you know. Um, and we do look for, we're hoping there are some community options in our neighborhood. Perhaps my son's not very good at baseball. Perhaps I have a child who likes STEM, you know. Uh, perhaps I have a child who wants to be a public radio host. Well, hey, here I am. Come find me. I got you. But there are so many other optics around because often we say, well, it's the parents. It's the parents. Mm -hmm. And that might be. But there are some other issues with the parents because they, it's not that they want to be a bad parent. They're working. I think that's fair. They don't have the tools. Right. Do they have the tools to provide their children with this children with this level of education? And what we know is even if you do a really effective job in training your child, do you speak all the languages that are spoken in Atlanta, which is a global city? Are you well, well versed on the Internet and in cyberspace and now this new metaverse? So at a certain point, we're going to have to rely upon other entities in the community to come in and help out. Chuck Barlow, down there in Jackson county where you are what's been working well we we are saucy uh saving our sons and sisters in action we actually have a parent training program because we realize that um you know our, our thing is find out what the cause is and then come up with a solution to it mm -hmm. and so we we provide training this is a nationwide um, tested uh program that we actually train parents and and i i hear what you i i, I kind of laugh when the, the you you read the email from the lady uh we agree because we realized that a lot of problems in particular with black males is that they can't read um we did tutoring in an elementary school had a third grade uh young male that could not read now the first thing when i tell somebody that the first thing they say is well that's the parents fault i said well you got to understand something and in many of these cases, this parent is working two, sometimes three jobs, got four or five kids, and they're a single parent. So when they get home from any of those jobs, when do they have time to sit down with their kids? They don't have it. So why don't you go tutor? Why don't you go into the room, into the class, into the school, and provide some tutoring service? All you got to do, we, we did tutoring um, one, two hours a week. Two days a week, we do an hour with sometimes with five students at the same time. It made such a difference that school came off of the failing list. So you think your little bit can't make a difference. It can make a difference. So there, there's a solution for every problem, but you first of all got to find out what the problem is and then come up with the solution for it. Kelly Stewart, you and I have had conversations offline where you've talked about, even just with what you all are doing with the young boys in baseball, you you all have, full disclosure, you've had to even come out your own pocket and help the family of that young man because there are so many other circumstances. Absolutely. So when you talk about um, stabilizing a youth, a youth that is dysregulated, meaning they are exposed to high levels of frequent trauma all the time, stress that has turned into trauma because they don't have a buffer, that is 10 times out of 10 for us it's generational. It is not just an occurrence that's happening now. So it, it's in order for one of our boys to make it to practice, maybe we had to assist with transportation. Maybe while one of our boys was at school, the family got evicted. And so he came home to his stuff being on the, on, on the street. So for us, it's like, let us use our resources to get storage, get the family in, you know, temporary housing until we can connect them with longer term solutions, like with our partner, Chris 180. But baby boy got to come to practice today yeah. because at the end of the day, we want him to feel like he's a child and to stay a child as long as he possibly can. To solutions, because I know a lot of people are talking about solutions. We use a curriculum called Habitudes. It's a character building, SEL building, social emotional learning building curriculum that uses images to convey the habits and attitudes mm -hmm. that we want our boys to um, to to 
embody. And so when you think about a generation that's tech savvy, you know, all these words and text, they're not listening to that because they're looking at images and stuff all day online. So if you have these images associated with these behaviors, you can have a different kind of conversation about leadership with them. CJ, I have a listener who just uh, sent me an email, email saying that at the root of the, at the end of the day, it really is about modeled behavior being the ultimate answer. What do you think of that? I totally agree. I mean, culture is all about um, behaviors and, um, and 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 being able to see it again. Going back to, you can give me the information all day long, but I need to experience it. And so, I was fortunate enough uh, to experience that through my coaches. And even to that point, you know, Kelly and I both are um, Buckhead parents. So we have our oldest daughter, Mackenzie, graduated from Westminster in 2019, and then our youngest daughter, McKenna, is a 10th grader at Lovett. Mm-hmm. We know firsthand that even so, I know what it's like to be a bankhead kid, mm-hmm. but I also know what it's like to be a buckhead parent. And buckhead parents need a whole lot of support as well. I'm talking a whole lot of support. What do you mean? Take the further because I know somebody almost just ran off the road when you said that. Yeah, I <laughs> I'm mean, just, I'm just keeping it real. Yeah, so, yeah, so you know, when, <laughs> so day to day stresses, like Kelly said, you know, so the the buffer for that is calling your neighbor. Uh, if you don't call your neighbor, I don't care how much money you make, you have a lot of executives who can't get out of school when their children are being disruptive in the school because children at these schools are disruptive. And so you can call a neighbor, you can call a nanny. Um, and then after school, you can get a kid out to sports, you know, so that that way they can, um, you know, release some energy. So we always say it takes a village to raise a child, sure. but it takes a village to support parents. That is true. It, it, Joshua, and then for kids who may not, you know, you were great at sports. I, I, I was pretty good. Kelly, you are good at sports. Joshua, you look, you might have been a you know, tight end or wide receiver <laughs> or first baseman. Hey, look, everybody <laughs> don't want to play sports, you know. But often we that's kind of the go-to. Um, but we know also that our kids, uh, they love STEM. Mm-hmm. They're creative. You all had a, a creative writing. Mm-hmm. Poetry, poetry, art, essay contest. You know, and, and and look, we don't. We could spend a whole nother episode talking about how what's the first thing to get cut sometimes in school districts when they have to make budget items. They have to make you know all these different decisions. They tend to cut the arts. Absolutely. So the community then you you believe mm-hmm. can step in and add those extracurricular activities for our youth. Absolutely. And and just going back to something that was said earlier, when we talk about some of the systemic issues, you know, we have to understand that youth violence, according to the World Health Organization, is a public health issue. And the question becomes, is this, is it should youth violence be considered a public health crisis here mm-hmm. in the United States? I say yes. You look at what a crisis is. I think what we have now fits that definition. But just for the listeners to understand, when we talk about public health and something being a public health crisis, think about your doctor. If something's wrong with you, your doctor treats you according to your needs. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to public health, we have to treat the entire community. Part of it might be deciding on what some of those behaviors are that CJ was just talking about, those best practices, so that folks can start modeling this. So, so Dr. Satcher uh, has has, has the the 16th Surgeon General of the United States, Mm -hmm. he said that public health, um, public health and gun violence was a public health issues years ago. We're planning a conference in January of, or February of 2023 where we'll again revisit that and declare again that public health uh, issue it, and gun violence is a public health crisis. And so um, I think that we have to understand that dynamic, create that awareness model so that we can start modeling that behavior in response to that. And so then now we're getting to this part where we're talking about, OK, then we need then everybody, all of y'all have said collaboration then now comes into what can we do on a national or from a federal level obviously some people first thing they think of is it has to be money but you mentioned dr satcher who's been mm-hmm. a guest on this program many times in the satcher institute chuck barlow then if this is a nationwide problem we know the increase in, in youth violence then what role should if any the federal government play in this well i i think that uh when you talk about the federal government, you know, primarily from a federal government perspective, they need to provide the funding, but the community needs to do the work. Uh, somebody said something to me, oh, when, when you were talking about the, you know, you got to have kids busy. And I don't mind the devil's workshop. And my, my granddaddy would say, a uh, mule that's kicking ain't pulling, and a mule that's pulling and kicking. I know that's country, but I am country. That's I feel so that. If you don't have them, they, they, have more, they have more time to get in trouble. 
we have formed a program that can be national and we'd like to invite each of you on this. It's called Opportunity Youth. It's mm -hmm. called Ready by 2030. And, and the first Wednesday in every month, uh, we have a, a, a Zoom conference and there, there are resources on this call from every corner you can think of. And what we have is we have young people to come in and tell us what they need. We had a young man uh, that was brought in by one of our board members, um, his grandson mm -hmm. came in from Seattle, had been getting through all kinds of trouble in Seattle. He came here, he came on one time and we have a, a role model uh, young man that uh, we started with in, in Washington High School back in 2010, has become very successful. And he was on talking and this young man latched on to him. And after that, he said, you know, if he can do it, I can do it. This old man was changing his whole life because he was a model. Now, anything, this, this program is designed so that whatever that young person needs, if they need a job, if they need job skills, if they need counseling, if they need mentoring, there's somebody on that call that will say, I will do it. We'll provide this resource. And see, that we got to get them working because a lot of them are unemployed mm -hmm. and they don't know how to find a job. If they need training on how to interview, there's somebody on that call that will help them in that process. So this is a collaboration that brings all resources together to say, I want to help you young person. And see, young people can come on. We're inviting young people to come on at any time. So I want to invite you all to it. I'll send you the link. Uh, to Absolutely. And, and I want to bring this up because what Chuck Barlow talks about here, listen, we know there is a domestic violence hotline. We know there is a suicide hotline. We know there is the hotlines if you are facing an eviction. And someone, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't know if we have a hotline for youth violence, for someone who may be ex experiencing it or a parent. It, it, so the hotline for youth violence is mentorship plus sponsorship. So we have mentored children to death, but we have not provided them with opportunities to take that mentorship to another level and apply it in their lives. One part of our programming is to teach our boys the game of baseball because the statistics show that the vast majority of them won't play it past high school, maybe college maybe not in the pros, but you can become a coach. You can become a coach at the high school level. You can become a coach at the college level. And so we have two tracks. You can be on field or you can be front office. Mm -hmm. And so making sure that as we're mentoring youth and telling them to keep hope alive, we're giving them opportunities where they can put into play what they're learning from us and earn money while doing it. Our internships are paid internships. So if you're trying to offer someone an internship and say, well, they should just be happy for the experience, that's not where we at right now. You know what I'm saying? Our, our youth need to be able to earn money because if they aren't able to earn money within the guardrails of our programs, they are going to be at the end of ramp selling water because they need our society runs off of money. CJ, it is no secret right now when we are talking about the gang violence, the gangs here in the Atlanta area. Um, I think we all have heard Fonnie Willis, District Attorney, Fulton County, earlier this week, laying it out about her county. Um, what do you tell your boys about the decisions and what choices they make? And, and do they talk to you about the struggle with, with gangs and, and, and not being lured into that activity? They do. I mean, we are intentionally scouting out African-American boys in Atlanta public schools, grades 6 through 12, that are underperforming in grades, attendance, and behavior. That is a very unique thing to be doing that and doing it year-round. And That's a focus for you all. That is a focus, and also a focus of African-American boys um, that are living in low-income um, homes and boys that are not motivated to play baseball. So we're going to start from the premise of Baseball is not that hard, and the promise is when you finish our programming, uh, you'll understand our values and they'll become virtues. And so, you know, for our boys, you know, so a game can have a negative connotation to it, but it can also have a positive kind of connotation. So for us, I mean, lead, we are a positive gang, and we have power. We have, we are significant. We make promises. We keep promises. 
and Kelly and I have both had experience. So when we're saying that, then at that point, we are convicting them, which gets them connected to our mission. So we don't have to spend a whole lot of time um, talking to them about the activities that they have. But one of the things that Kelly does a great job of, just very simply, she'll say, you got to make a choice. So you can either be in the negative game or you can be in our positive game. But if you're with us right now, we are promising that you have a 100% chance of graduating from high school. But then also, too, if you desire that you, you want to be an astronaut, that's a quick text message to me, from me to Shane Kimbrough, who just got back from space mm-hmm. six months ago. So we're well connected. And so as we lay that out unapologetically, a lot of times they often choose to be with us. Joshua, how do you all connect with kids when they say, listen, you don't understand what it's like, Joshua. You know, I'm out here. Now I live where I live. I'm in my neighborhood, but I've got these barriers, these challenges. How can you understand what I'm going through? And, I, and you've probably heard that. I hear it. I hear it often. And fortunately, and going back to what CJ said earlier, you need folks with the knowledge, with the information and the experience. Fortunately, I have that. Fortunately, I grew up Section 8, housing, you know, food stamps, you name it, victim of gun violence, saw people shot and killed. I have that experience. I understand them and I can talk to and connect. But I want to say this and make it in no uncertain terms, Mr. Rose, is this. This gun violence and this youth violence is a public health. It's a community-wide issue. So health, So let me ask you this, because you've said that before mm-hmm. on more than one occasion. Right, right. And no one is disagreeing with that. So public health departments need to also play a role in this, you think? Well, the government. Or, the government? Because here's why. CJ and Kelly can only do so much. At a certain point, you talked about Fonnie Willis, our district attorney. Accountability. Mm-hmm. Where is the accountability for the safety and security of society? I'm a criminal justice professor. Policing started with volunteers. Or if you're a taxpaying individual, part of your duty was to go out and patrol. Mm-hmm. There was no one else. We learned that that didn't work. We needed an organization to focus on the safety and security of society. And so we said we need policing all the time. Policing also started with slave patrols. Right. Yes. But, 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 okay. but, 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 but what I'm saying is, and, and what I'm saying is, I understand that. I I'm got a criminal you. justice professor. I, I got you. But got what you. I'm saying is this volunteer force, this volunteer force is not as effective as people who are committed to the mission. And people who are not only committed to the mission, but organizations that are held accountable. Okay. such as our school systems when we're held accountable to make sure that students are doing well in and, school. But educators will tell you, Joshua and, and Kelly and CJ and, and Chuck, you all know this, educators will say, I have majority of my kids who want to learn, but if I'm spending 20 minutes breaking up fights or trying to discipline somebody else's child about something that they know better, it's all these optics involved. But are we teaching them conflict resolution in school? Are we teaching them how to res- We're expecting children to behave. But we've never taught them how to behave. So are we starting pre, pre-K? I think so. I think it's a 12K. I, th- I think it's a K-12 initiative. We have to teach individuals how to resolve conflicts because that's, that's going to help the teachers. That's going to help the students in school and in the community. But right now we're expecting things. We're expecting them to have tools that they don't and have. And we should know, too, it's not just we're not just talking about just zip codes in southwest Atlanta because during COVID-19 and the height of this and we saw folks in other zip codes who were acting just a little bit crazy at school board meetings because they didn't want their kids to wear a mask. So we're talking about modeling behavior. If you see your parent at a school board meeting cussing out the school board because they don't want their kids to wear masks, then, you know, let's just be clear about that. That's all I'm saying. Now, shut up now. And we also have to understand that this is not just on the school. It's not just on the teachers. It's not just on the parents. It's not just on the church in all the other entities in the community. It is on all of us. I mean, Mm -hmm. CJ and I have two girls. We're married. And this parenting thing is hard. So I can't imagine how my grandma did it as a single parent. This thing is hard. If we got about five families that are our go-to for a girl, I'm I'm running late. I'm going to need you to pick up McKenna so she's not standing out at the school by herself. Mm -hmm. So if you don't have that network of support, this parenting stuff is hard. Couple that with a generational deficit of resources. Something happened to your car, $2,000. That'll take you out. That's stress in the home. That stress spills over to the children. The children take that stress to school. We got to help each other and stop pointing fingers at mm-hmm. one another and use those of us who are well resources and who well resourced in other areas to help people instead of looking condescendingly at people. 
Chuck, I've got just a few minutes, but I'm going to start with you as we begin to wrap up. If there's something that you want folks to take away from today's conversation, what is it? Yeah, I want, uh, okay, we talked about government engagement. Now, what, what I this, this, I hope you'll send this article to them as well. Uh, they formed a neighborhood safety and family engagement um, office. This is the city uh, formed this. And their responsibility is to foster community-based strategies to help prevent violence and to increase public safety. Okay. It, it ha- you have to get the entire community. No one entity can resolve this. So we have to work together collaboratively to address these issues. All right. There's that word again, community. Joshua. Absolutely. And we talk about collaboration. Uh, Our anti-gun violence community meets on the second Thursday of each month at Flipper Temple AME Church off of Student Movement Boulevard. And we're also working with the Satcher Health Leadership Institute for a uh, anti-violence conference uh, at the beginning of next year, um, January or February. And this is our, our anti-gun violence committee is open to the entire community for the reasons that we've been discussing. And that's going to allow us to better serve the needs of our, of our community and also help reduce these incidents of violence in the community. All right, CJ. So I believe that black youth are over-mentored and under-sponsored in Atlanta. And the last thing is just that uh, programming uh, is only as good as policy. So we definitely need more strength at the policy level. Kelly Stewart, you get the last word. My husband said it all. I'll give it to him. High five to you. <laughs> That's my last word. That's your last word. <laughs> <laughs> he, he really said what I was going to say. <laughs> that I wasn't expecting the high because I'm so used to you just laying it all out. I know, there. but that's like 25 years of marriage. He's like in my brain. That was great. <laughs> Kelly and C.J. Stewart, founders of Atlanta-based Lead Ooh. Center for Youth. Joshua Bird, committee chair for the Anti-Gun Violence Committee of 100 Black Men of Atlanta. Charles Chuck Barlow, senior CEO of the Pan-African American Chamber of Commerce and founder, co-founder of Saving Our Sons and Our Daughters. Thank you all so much for being part of this. It's just, it's just a little bit, but every little bit helps, right? Amen to that. I appreciate y'all taking the time. We will continue to cover this issue in our community and appreciate what all everything that you all are doing for our community. This is 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.